0: Today we have for you a brand new episode just come out from under the 60-day embargo period during which our participating newspapers have exclusive rights. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on December 1st of 2023 under the headline, Six Iconic Food Items That Were Invented in Oregon. Here we go. At the time of this writing, the Christmas shopping season is just starting to spool up, and folks are getting ready for some serious holiday eating. Most likely that festive feasting won't include many of the things on this list. Although inventors from the Beaver State have had a big impact at the grocery store, most of what they've created would be a bit out of place at a Christmas dinner. The big exceptions are the products created by scientists at Oregon State University— Back when it was called Oregon Agricultural College, Marion berries for pie, and modern processed maraschino cherries for that holiday punch bowl. So let's get started with those. Number one, the modern maraschino cherry, 1929. Maraschino cherries originally came from Italy, where a particularly nasty variety of wild cherry called a marasca grows. Marascas, fresh from the tree, are sour and Bitter, but the locals over the years have figured out that they could be made into a particularly scrumptious kind of liqueur. Even better, when whole morasca cherries are pickled in that liqueur, they became delicious. The cherries caught on with high society drinkers who loved them in cocktails. Problem was, like a lot of wild fruits, morascas aren't prolific, so the cherries were very expensive. Various other cherries were tried, both for the fruit and for the liqueur. And some non alcoholic formulas were developed as well. Most of these Foeschinos, if you will, were pretty bad. Writer Inara Verjmanix found a number of articles from early 1900s newspapers complaining about their quality. And then along came prohibition, and the original Italian ones became unobtainable. Meanwhile, Cherry growers in Oregon were trying to figure out how to get into the market with a proper, non-alcoholic maraschino cherry made with safe, reliable industrial processes. The climate in the Willamette Valley is nearly perfect for growing cherries, but the ones that grow best there are the big, sweet ones that break down into mush and turn unappetizing colors when they're pickled or preserved. One particularly disgruntled cherry grower happened to be a brother-in-law of William Jasper Kerr, the president of Oregon Agricultural College, now Oregon State University, as I said. Well, the college had just hired a hotshot horticulture professor named Ernest Wiegand a few years earlier, so Kerr put the problem before him. And Wigand basically spent the second half of the 1920s working on this problem trying various formulas to get the cherries right, and in the end, he figured out that certain calcium salts would firm the cherries up. And one of his colleagues, Bob Kane, developed a technique for safely bleaching the cherries so that they would end up ghost white, ready to be dyed with food coloring or, in the case of more recent offerings, extracts of beetroots and other natural colorants to become that lurid red maraschino cherry color. And with these twin breakthroughs, Oregon became the dominant player in maraschino cherry production worldwide. Number two, the marionberry, 1956. So the marion cultivar of blackberries has been the most widely planted blackberry in the United States since the early 1980s. And for anyone looking forward to some home-baked pie after Christmas dinner, marionberries just might be involved. Blackberries, as most Oregonians know all too well, are a type of fruit that combines some of the worst qualities of a plant with some of the best. Few fruits are anywhere near as delicious as a ripe, juicy blackberry, but the vines tend to be sprawling and disorderly and covered with great spiky murder thorns. At their worst, they grow astonishingly quickly, are very hard to eradicate, and shade out everything beneath them. The common invasive Himalayan blackberries that grow all over the wetter parts of the state are the best example of this type. In the mid-1930s, when OSU professor George Waldo set out to breed what would become the marionberry, there was an almost direct connection between the quality of the fruit and the density and awfulness of the brambles it grew on. One could find blackberry varieties that were well-behaved and almost thornless, but the fruits were small and not very juicy. Or one could take the all-too-short walk to the nearest tangle of wild Himalayan blackberries and find the opposite. Waldo set out to breed the perfect blackberry, one with delicious fruit and well-behaved vines. He actually spent about two full decades on this quest, starting in 1935 when he cooked up a cultivar called Santiam by crossing loganberries with Pacific blackberries. Pacific blackberries are the tiny ones that are frequently found on forest floors, forming more of a tripping hazard than a spike hazard. They have not very spiny vines, they have a few leaves here and there, and their berries of course are few and far between and very small. So crossing those with loganberries yielded some progress in the form of Santiam cultivar. Then, in 1936, Waldo crossed his Santiam with the infamous and ubiquitous Himalayan blackberries to get a variety that he called Chehalem. Well, Chehalem berries were tasty, but the vines they grew on were a little too reminiscent of their disorderly horrible Himalayan parent— so Waldo made one more cross, breeding Chehalem berries with Olali berries. And Olali was another hybrid that Waldo had created the previous year by crossing two older traditional varieties, young berries and Black Loganberries. And the result of all of this stuff was the Marion Blackberry, a fast-growing but well-behaved vine with thorns that were not overly vicious and huge fruits that practically melt in your mouth. Its main bug, if you will, is really a feature for home growers and farmers' market customers, which is this. The berry skins are so tender that they don't take rough handling very well, so mechanical harvesting is tricky. On the other hand, if you're not harvesting them mechanically, like I said, they melt in your mouth. The vines are also very sensitive to cold, so about the only place they grow well is the Willamette Valley. Most Marion berries are still grown right in Marion County, the county they were tested in and named after. Number three, the tater tot, 1953. Okay, as we turn our attention now to what food historian Heather Arndt Anderson calls Oregon's prodigal spud, we are straying into distinctly non-Christmassy territory. And yet, in the few dozen short years since brothers Golden and Neef Grigg invented it, the tater tot has become as much a part of American comfort food as the Velveeta-drenched macaroni noodle. It got started just after the Second World War, when Golden and Neef rented a flash freezing plant in Ontario. The town in Oregon, of course, not the province in Canada. But they were in the frozen vegetable business, specializing in sweet corn, and they needed a facility to make the product. Well, a few years later, their landlord went bankrupt, and the brothers bought the plant out of foreclosure and expanded their sweet corn hustle into a full-blown frozen foods company. Their plan? add frozen French fries to their offerings as nearly the very first order of business. Ontario being right on the Idaho border, the brothers, who actually lived on the Idaho side of the line, named their new company Or ida By 1953, Orida ida was the biggest producer of frozen corn in the country, but the brothers knew the real money was going to be in those French fries. Another famous Idaho resident, J.R. Simplot, had figured out how to freeze potatoes without them turning black. Now the brothers wanted to use his system to create frozen, ready-to-cook fries, but this was turning out to be a bigger headache than they had thought it would be. The problem was, when a potato was cut up into fries, they needed a way to cut off the irregular pieces and cut off ends. They were having a hard time coming up with a solution, a mechanical solution, rather, to this. You know, a solution that didn't involve them picking through trays of potatoes and taking the little fragments out by hand. But customers really were not into buying a bag of french fries that was mostly half-inch-long slivers, so something had to be figured out. Then one day, a very confused salesman showed up to try to sell the brothers a prune-sorting machine. Of course, everyone got a good laugh when the salesman realized his error, but then, instead of hitting the road in search of the nearest actual fruit processor, he stuck around and visited for a bit. One thing led to another, and pretty soon the salesman was showing off his fruit sorter— and the brothers were thinking hard. The machine looked like it would, with the right modifications, do a pretty good job on potatoes as well. Sorting the potatoes by size would go a long way toward eliminating the tiny fragments problem. To his probable surprise, when the salesman left the Griggs shop, he had an order in his pocket, and with the modifications the brothers specified, it turned out to be just what they needed. But now they had another problem. A good problem. But a problem nonetheless. Lots and lots of ends and bits of potatoes left over from the French fry cutting process. They started out by feeding them to livestock. But the brothers hated this. There was nothing wrong with the potato bits they were getting. They were perfectly fit for human consumption. Feeding them to animals just seemed like a waste of good food. So they tried a few things. Ways to turn tiny bits of potato into something people would want to eat. One of the first things they tried was chopping the potatoes up fine... Compressing them into a long, thin log like a giant pepperoni stick, and cutting the stick into segments. Very quickly, they figured out they were onto something big. The Tater Tots had their table debut the following year when Golden and Neef brought a 15 pound bag of tots to the 1954 National Potato Convention. Neef persuaded the chef at the convention dinner to cook up the tots and serve a few of them on small saucers next to each diner's plate. These were all gobbled up faster than a dead cat could wag its tail, Neef wrote colorfully if it bit incoherently for 35 years later. Number four, The Corn Dog, 1939. On Labor Day in 1939, George Boyington, a Rockaway Beach entrepreneur who ran a hot dog stand downtown, was sitting in his kitchen glumly contemplating a huge pile of hot dog buns. The buns were too stale to sell. He had ordered too many. Now he was going to have to throw them out. Remember, this was 1939. Plastic bread bags would not be invented for another 18 years. So, you know, throwing a bag or two in the freezer, not an option for George. Buns had to come in from the bakery the same day they went out, wrapped around a hot dog, and that meant he had to estimate how many he thought he'd need the day before and place the order and hope for the best and usually he'd order more than he thought he'd need because it was better to have to feed a few stale buns to the seagulls than to turn away customers because he'd run out. So George threw away a lot of buns, and it always bothered him. Well, on this particular day, as he moped there, glaring at the unsaleable pile of bread products in his kitchen, Boyington started thinking about how awesome it would be if he could make the bun and the hot dog at the same instant just before handing it all over to the customer. And that's when it hit him. He could do that, just it couldn't be a bun. But what he could do was dip a hot dog in batter the way you dip a piece of fish for fish and chips and then deep fry it, on the spot. Boyington went home and started experimenting with recipes. Soon he nailed down what he thought was the perfect blend of flavors and textures to complement a hot dog. And then he went into business, marketing Pronto Pup batter mix in stores nationwide. Boyington moved to Portland to set up manufacture of his mix to be closer to distribution networks. Very quickly it became clear that Boyington had invented something really special. He trademarked the name Pronto Pup and launched his hot dog stand business as a franchise. Pronto Pups, the franchise stores, are still all over the country and are super popular in the Midwest. Pronto Pups, the brand of corn dog, also have become synonymous with county and state fairs over the years and are big crowd-pleasers at any kind of outdoor summer event. You don't see much of them during the holiday season, of course. There is, by the way, a special Pronto Pup stand in Rockaway, the original Pronto Pup, to commemorate the town's role in the invention of the world's most iconic state fair fair. People who are fans of their corn dogs sometimes make pilgrimages or, you know, at least make a point of stopping by on their Oregon Coast vacations. Number five, Big League Chew, 1977. Baseball players back in the day were somewhat famous for chewing tobacco on the field. Fans would see them pull a pouch of Red Man or Beechnut Nut out of their uniform pocket and dip out a big pinch and stuff it in there between the cheek and gum. Sometimes it would even make a visible bulge. Minor league slugger Rob Nelson probably chewed the stuff, too, although he played for the Portland Mavericks. In Portland, as in most of the Pacific Northwest, moist snuff products like Copenhagen and Skoll are still more popular than pouch chaws like Beech Nut. You know, but maybe not. The pouch was, after all, a sort of informal baseball tradition. So in 1977, while waiting in the dugout for his turn at bat, Nelson was not surprised to see the bat boy pulling a beechnut nut pouch out of his trousers and taking a big pinch out of it. He wasn't surprised, but he probably was a bit alarmed because the bat boy was way too young to be chewing tobacco. Oh no, the kid said when challenged on his chaw. It's just a tobacco pouch that I've put shredded licorice in. Look. And this got Nelson to thinking. In a world of avid baseball fans who were too young to dip or chew, might there be a market for a candy product that simulated it? He invested a little money into a bubblegum-making kit and started prototyping. Within just a few years, he had a finished product and a patent, which he sold almost immediately to a subsidiary of the Wrigley Company. In its target demographic, Big League Chew was a huge, immediate hit. I myself remember how popular and ubiquitous it was on middle school playgrounds in 1980, just three years after Rob Nelson saw that bat boy chewing what he thought was real tobacco. Number six, the final food, the Garden Burger, 1981. So if your family is on track for a vegetarian Christmas feast, this last featured Oregon food might actually be on your menu in some form, or at least a product derived from or related to it. The Garden Burger, that looks like a hamburger patty from far away food product made of rice, mushrooms, and cheese, was invented in Gresham by a vegetarian health food gourmet named Paul Wenner. Wenner, in 1981, had just opened a vegetarian restaurant called The Garden House in Gresham. One of the meals on his menu was something he called the Garden Loaf Sandwich. Its contents, the eponymous loaf— was a formula that he had developed previously when he'd mixed some chopped mushrooms into leftover rice pilaf and bound it all together with cheese. The Garden Loaf Sandwich was a hit, so he added another version of it to the menu, a patty made of Garden Loaf stuff. He called this, of course, the Garden Burger. Well, the Garden Burger was also a hit, but it wasn't a big enough hit to keep a vegetarian restaurant in business in early 1980s Gresham all by itself. By 1984, Wenner could see that the restaurant was actually holding back the success of his Garden Burger innovation. So he joined forces with a customer, Alan Smalland, and got a meeting with the CEO of Louisiana Pacific for the financing end of things and pitched a plan to take the Garden Burger nationwide. The CEO, Harry Merlot, made the deal with the understanding that LP would take over operational control after Garden Burger got off the ground. So Wener closed his restaurant? founded Wholesome and Hearty Foods Incorporated, and set about hiring the staff that he would need to market Garden Burger in health food stores, as well as the increasing number of mainstream supermarkets with vegetarian sections. The company got into some trouble by over-leveraging in the 1990s and had to take bankruptcy protection. It emerged a year later leaner and stronger and now owned by a New York investment firm, which later sold it to the Kellogg Breakfast Cereal Company, which owns it now. Kellogg took everything out of Oregon. Today, the company is based in Irvine, California, and its production plant is in Clearfield, Utah. But Portland vegetarians still remember when Garden Burger was a local vegetarian delicacy, although their holiday feasts probably will lean more on the offerings of tofurkey and plant-based cranberry sauce rather than Garden Burgers. Key sources in this story have included works by Inara Versmanix, Kelsey McKinney, Heather Arndt-Anderson, and Megan Cuthill. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I sure hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. Check out our hub page at offbeatoregon.com to explore all the other things we do or to find the full citations and visuals that go with today's show. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, see offbeatoregon.com. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Offbeat organ episodes come out once per weekday, usually around 6 a.m., so it won't be long before the next episode is on your device and ready for you to queue up. And Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day and the weekend with good stuff. Bye now.